So, good evening. Now that we've been here for a full 24 hours, it's a good time to silently check in with ourselves again. Just to get a sense of how we are now. You might just take a moment to tune in and notice, how is the body now? How is the heart and the mind now? Are they starting to settle in to just a little more calm and ease? Now don't worry, I'm not going to put you on the spot by asking you to share with the whole group. But based on my own experience of the first few days of a retreat, slightly there may have been some times of relative calm and ease, and probably also a few moments of the opposite. So perhaps some waves of agitation, anxiety, aversion, restlessness, judgment, doubt, and so on. Does that feel accurate for any of you? few nods. Yes. Pain. Pain, yes. So pain, physical pain, mental pain. And if it doesn't feel accurate for you now, don't worry, I'll ask you again tomorrow. So I'm playing, of course, but I'm trying to make the point that all of this is normal, it's natural, it's to be expected. That in spite of our sincere aspirations to develop kindness and compassion, calm, clarity and so on, unfortunately this process just doesn't happen in a steady, linear way. So if we try to draw a chart or a graph of the development of our meditation practice, and in this chart we had at the bottom left corner (coughs) what we can think of as abject misery, And in the top right corner, some kind of mythical non-misery. There is not a nice straight diagonal line between the two. It will probably look more like a roller coaster with quite a few loop-de-loops. And even though those loop-de-loops might be uncomfortable or unpleasant or maybe even painful, we can learn a lot from them. And one key insight or understanding is that we're not in nearly as much control as we'd like to think we are. If we were, we could just write down our aspirations and intentions like we did this morning and then start achieving them. So by the end of the day, by about now, we'd be able to tell ourselves, okay, done is what had to be done, as it says in the discourses. And we could all go home. But because we're not fully in control, of our wounded hearts and our unruly minds. A lot of what we're having to learn here is how to navigate these challenging experiences, how to be with experiences that are unwelcome, unwanted, unpleasant. And as I'm sure you all know by now, this can take a surprising amount of effort. And just to acknowledge, because you're all still here, you clearly already have quite some skill at finding this balanced effort. Nevertheless, effort as part of the practice is endlessly refinable. And the Buddha highlighted it as one of the meditative factors of the Noble Eightfold Path, where it's usually known as right effort or wise effort. 
and whether we've been meditating for two years or two decades, we still need to keep developing this factor of right effort to make sure that it's balanced and that it's sustainable and it's responsive to the ever-changing conditions that we find ourselves in. And just to say that more attuned and nuanced approach is pretty different from how most of us tend to relate to effort in the context of our ordinary, everyday lives. Our dominant cultural conditioning tends to reward striving, aggressive, even self-punishing effort, which, because it's not sustainable, often ends up pushing us to the brink of collapse or even beyond. Without some meditative training, we seem to be very (coughs) binary creatures. We have this all-or-nothing, boom-or-bust kind of approach. And it's not surprising that we would bring that to our meditation practice too, and to see it showing up even here on retreat. We don't see the irony of forcing ourselves to relax or pushing ourselves to be more peaceful. And that's why I've invited us to frame what we're doing here in terms of relaxed diligence rather than right effort. Because for some people, including me, early on in my practice, even the word effort can trigger all kinds of unconscious views and opinions and assumptions and beliefs about what right effort is supposed to mean. In my own case, early on, I assumed it meant blood, sweat and tears And so for the first few years of my practice, I brought a grim and a rigid attitude to meditation that quickly turned it into a chore and a duty, almost an exercise in masochism. And that particularly was true on retreat, when that unconscious attitude would go into overdrive. And I pushed myself in ways that were seriously unhealthy at times. So to try to circumvent that... Uh, This approach that I'm referring to as relaxed diligence is an attempt to bring a more nuanced understanding to what the Buddha meant by right effort. Because when we look at his actual definition of it in the discourses, it has four aspects to it. The first two aspects of right effort are bringing right effort to unskillful mental states to prevent afflictive mental qualities from getting a hold on us. But if they do, to make the effort to help those states release. And the last two aspects of right effort invite us to bring awareness to the other side of the scale, or the balance, to help the mind experience skillful, beneficial states. And when those come into the mind to help those skillful qualities to strengthen and deepen and ripen, so that we can keep the heart and mind in that refined balance that gives us a foretaste of freedom. So that's just a sense of where right effort takes us. But at this stage of the retreat, because our sati and samadhi are probably still somewhat weak, the mind is just more vulnerable to afflictive mind states. So in the service of right effort, I'd like to talk about some of the pretty common unskillful mental states that tend to come up in the early days of a retreat. And as many of you will probably know, these, in the context of the Satipatthana Sutta, 
are known as the five hindrances. And they're called hindrances because they interfere with clear seeing, with insight. And in the context of daily life, they tend to cause us harm, which makes us more likely to harm others too. So there's actually an ethical dimension to this aspect of right effort. We try to prevent our minds from being affected by the hindrances. But if they do get a hold on us, we make the effort to free ourselves from their grip so that the heart and mind can come back to balance, to stillness, to peace. So those of you who are more new to this practice, perhaps you can't name what each of the five are at this point, but I'm guessing you've probably experienced at least one or two of them at some point, perhaps today or in previous meditation sessions. Those of you who've been doing this for quite a while, you've probably heard a few talks on these five hindrances, so I think it's pop quiz time. So let's see if you can name what these five hindrances are in order. Anyone willing to name the first one? Not quite. Anyone else? No, that's the second one. Ross? Desire for sense pleasure. That's the first one. Second one, I think, Nick, you said... Anger, aversion, ill will, all in the terrain of not liking. Third one? I'll give you a clue. (laughs) Sloth and torpor? (laughs) Yep. Next one? Restlessness? Yes, restlessness and worry. And the last one, yeah. doubt. How come everyone knows doubt? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, even that is good to know, you know, just to get a snapshot. Here we have a sort of collective mind that we just got a snapshot of, but we can learn to know in our own mind which ones tend to be more prevalent, which ones are our sort of favorite, well, not necessarily favorite, but our common hindrances. Okay, so thank you. So, as I said, we want to learn to recognize what these five hindrances are and how they show up for each of us individually because they will have their own unique signature patterns for each of us, ways that they show up in our bodies, our hearts, our minds. And the more quickly we can identify them, the easier it is to release the hold they're trying to get on us. So just to say that by their very nature, they tend to bring in unskillful relationships to them because they're unpleasant, they're painful, they're unwelcome, they're unwanted, very easy to trigger resistance, that energy that we were exploring earlier today, and very easy to take them personally. And even the term hindrances can tend to reinforce that belief they're wrong, they're bad, they shouldn't be happening, they need to be got rid of as quickly as possible, which, as I just mentioned, is just more aversion. And in my own practice, I've noticed how even though they're named one, two, three, four, five, 
in my own experience, they don't just nicely, tidily show up one at a time. They tend, if one gets a hook into us, all the rest pile on for the party. They tend to hunt in packs. So it's very common to take the hindrances personally and to see them as our own unique shortcomings rather than something that every meditator who has ever lived has had to learn how to work with. So earlier in the practice this afternoon, somebody mentioned how just hearing how other people had physical tension and pain was helpful to universalize our own challenges. In exactly the same way, we want to universalize just how common these hindrances are. And so in that light, it was helpful for me to hear the English Dharma teacher, Robert Bayer, refer to the hindrances as manifestations of our humanity. And so you might notice if energetically that feels different rather than the term hindrances, to understand them as manifestations of our humanity. And I, when I've shared this in previous retreats and people come into individual meetings with me, they'll sometimes say, I was just manifesting so much humanity today. <laughs> and it's good to be able to laugh, to see these qualities as impersonal phenomena. They arise due to conditions, and they eventually pass due to conditions. They're not me, they're not mine, they're not who I am. So just to look at them in a little more detail now. The first one, let's see if you remember. <laughs> sense desire, desire for sense pleasure. So we were specific, it's not desire that's a problem. It's desire for sense pleasure. Because we can have wholesome desires. We have this bowl here of probably wholesome desires, aspirations, intentions. It's desire for sense pleasure and it's a problem because it's rooted in the energy of greed so that tendency to move towards pleasant experiences to cling, to hold on, to prolong to enhance pleasant sights and sounds and smells, tastes physical sensations, mental pleasure these sense pleasures might at times give us some short term happiness but because of the truth that everything changes in the long run, they can't deliver what they seem to promise. And this hindrance also often gets us into trouble ethically. When we're blinded by greed for something, we tend to stop seeing other people as fellow human beings. And sometimes we relate to them as objects that are getting in the way of our happiness, or as objects that exist only to make us happy. And so we can start to notice on retreats in these more laboratory-like conditions, how does this hindrance of sense desire show up? And I've seen in myself and sometimes other meditators, it can come in as an orientation to comfort. So have you noticed how quickly we start to devise all kinds of habits and strategies and techniques for keeping ourselves comfortable? And once we've got these in place, we can get surprisingly reactive if they get threatened in any way. Someone walking on my walking track, or someone sitting in my favorite seat in the dining room, or someone taking the very last serving of dessert when it's obvious that I haven't had mine yet. So there's different ways that we start to see 
how sense-desire can get magnified on retreat. Now on one level, it's normal to want to be comfortable. But the downside of trying to stay in our comfort zones is that the more we do that, the smaller they tend to get. And we can see this even in some of the more mainstream approaches to mindfulness, where mindfulness is sometimes presented as a technique for just making ourselves more comfortable, enhancing our well-being, which in itself is okay, but it doesn't give us the full depth of what this practice can offer. So recently I was researching something about mindfulness online, and I was taken to a page that was promoting a product that was called Mindful Bath Salts. And apparently these mindful bath salts can restore calm and serenity amidst modern life through a blend of Epsom and Himalayan mineral salts, frankincense and bergamot and CBD oil. (laughs) Now maybe (laughs) they can help us become less stressed, but products or substances alone are probably not going to give us a sustained and a lasting well-being. And they're probably not going to deepen wisdom and compassion. So it's pretty easy for self-care to turn into self-indulgence. And we don't discover the full potential for freedom that this path can lead to. So that's another reason I invited us to write down these aspirations, to get that clarity, to remind us that there is this possibility to go beyond the limits of our imagination into unknown, uncharted territory. So when it comes to the mind and understanding the effect of these hindrances on the mind, in the classical discourses, the metaphor of water is often used as a symbol for the mind. Still clear water is a synonym for the mind in meditation. And it evokes qualities of clarity and tranquility. And when the mind is still and clear, when sati and samadhi are both strong, that's when deep insight can arise. So when the Buddha was talking about the hindrances, he used the metaphor of a bowl of water to represent the mind. And this is because in the India of his day, it wasn't so common for everyday people to have mirrors. And instead, they used a bowl of water to check their reflection. And so with that image, pretty clearly, if the water in the bowl is not completely still, we're not going to get an accurate or a clear image. And so the Buddha described how each of the hindrances affects the mind by comparing them to that bowl of water. And with the first hindrance, the hindrance of sense desire, he compared it to a bowl of water that's had all kinds of dyes mixed into it red and blue and yellow and green dyes all swirling around. And the pretty colors enchant us, but they prevent us from seeing clearly. And in English, we talk about seeing life through rose-tinted glasses, which in some ways is pointing to that tendency to only see what we want to see. So sometimes when people hear all this talk about not clinging to desire for sense pleasures, they wonder, well, what's so bad about just getting my desires met, if when I can? 
And the Buddha did acknowledge that they can be a source of happiness. But on retreat, we can see just how short-term this happiness often is. Because of the truth that everything changes, before long, that pleasantness fades. And then we're off searching for the next hit, the next hit, the next. And if we keep putting all our attention out there to try and find satisfaction, then we're just dependent on unstable conditions to make us happy. And that's a setup for disappointment. On the other hand, if we can learn how to ride the waves of desire without automatically indulging them, it strengthens that inner peace. There's some steadiness to our hearts and minds, independent of whatever the external conditions might be. So there's a lot we could say here, but I'm going to attempt to keep this somewhat concise. The first strategy we need to employ is mindfulness, to be able to recognize how this hindrance shows up for us. And as we were doing this afternoon, where we were sensitizing ourselves to how clinging feels in the body, how resistance feels in the body, with the sense desire, we can notice that energetic sense of being pulled, pulled forward, leaning into experience. And so you might start to notice that. You might be just calmly, quietly, mindfully, walking back to your room and then you catch a delicious smell coming from the kitchen and just there's that little bit of mmm and we're subtly off balance and pulled and we decide we'll just go and check out what that smell is and hope then our minds get caught in thinking I wonder if it's this, I hope it's that maybe it's going to be my favorite meal and then we've lost our mindfulness but even that very first sense of being pulled drawn into, getting involved with something. And to be able to name to ourselves, ah, this is sense desire. Because that moment of recognition, even if it's fleeting, is a moment of freedom. The part of the mind that's able to recognize the hindrance is not caught up in the hindrance itself. So each time we're able to recognize and to name what it is, we're perforating that hindrance cloud and that makes it easier for the cloud to break up and to disperse. So, a second powerful antidote is the quality of relinquishment or renunciation. And all of us here are already involved in that to some extent. When we come on retreat, we're invited to practice just accepting the conditions as we find them, rather than trying to change them to suit our own individual preferences. And some of you have had the experience of practicing in places where conditions are very simple. And you might find that actually deep stillness and contentment is more available than when we're in locations where we can have all of our sense desires more easily met. So we can practice too something that's known as guarding the sense doors. Almost like having a protective bubble around us and we keep our awareness in that bubble. So when we're walking, if we're walking along the road, 
Do we really need to look at that car? How many cars have we seen in our lifetime? Do we need to check it out and see who's driving and where the license plate is from and wonder where it's going and blah, 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 and then we're off. But instead, we can just notice or note seeing or hearing and not let the attention be pulled out of that bubble. We can save ourselves so much trouble. At times when mindfulness is weak, though, and this uh, sense-desire hindrance gets a bit of a hold on us, we start to experience the interplay between sense-desire and ill-will or aversion. If we're not able to fulfill our sense-desires, what often comes up instead is aversion, anger, irritation, frustration. The Pali word that's usually translated as ill will is viapada, and this, according to Gil Fronstel, literally means to strike out at something. So it's motivated by hostility. It manifests as wanting to hurt, to attack, to push away, or to reject something. So it, it can include more subtle forms of aversion, such as mental resistance, all the way through to murderous rage. And it also includes various forms of fear, from minor anxiety all the way through to extreme terror. So this one covers a pretty broad scope of pretty unpleasant emotions and mind states. And sometimes I give people a list of what they are, but that list can get very long. So I'm sure you know from your own experience all of these qualities that are in the terrain of aversion. So in the classical analogy of the bowl of water, ill will is likened to a bowl of water that is, quote, heated on a fire, boiling up and bubbling over. And obviously when the water is hot and it's steamy like that, we can't see clearly. And again, in English we talk about seething with anger. And seething means boiling, it's a very unpleasant state. So we get a sense of just how painful aversion can be painful and potentially dangerous to others and to ourselves. And sometimes we can see this showing up on retreat as reactivity to the retreat container. So sometimes we rebel against the retreat schedule. We experience fear of not following it perfectly. Sometimes there can be agitation about having to do our mindfulness tasks or flickers of irritation with our fellow meditators. Again, there are myriad ways that we can get caught in aversion. But there's one very common type that can show up on retreat, because it's common out there too, and that's the phenomenon known as judging mind. Anybody notice that one? The tendency to judge ourselves, to judge our practice, to judge each other, to judge the teachers, to judge anything that moves at times. And it can be quite shocking to see just how much energy is taken by this thing. And again, the tender, the antidote, although it's challenging, is to try not to take it personally. And if possible, to bring a sense of humor to it. So Joseph Goldstein has a couple of techniques that I've experimented with at times when I was much more susceptible to this judging mind. 
And one of them, he suggested just counting your judging thoughts. So from the minute you wake up in the morning, just sort of be on the lookout for judging thoughts and start to number them. So perhaps hypothetically, you walk into the dining room for breakfast and why isn't that person wearing their mask? Judgment number one. Uh Uh-oh, I'm not wearing my mask. Ah, how could I be so unmindful? Judgment number two. Why is that person taking so long to help themselves to the cornflakes? Judgment number three. And on and on and on. And pretty soon we're at 53 or 553. And at some point we just have to recognize, this is not me, this is not my mind, this is just judgment, ill will arising. The second strategy that he uses is to add a a nonsense phrase to the end of the judging sentence. So he used the example of, and the sky is blue. Why isn't that person wearing their mask? And the sky is blue. How could I be so unmindful? And the sky is blue, and so on. Again, the intention is just to depersonalize, take the sting out of it. And there's one particular challenge with ill will, is that because it's unpleasant, it's easy to get caught in aversion to the aversion, an aversion to the aversion to the aversion. But the more we struggle with it, the more that very resistance makes it hang around longer. So at times we might need to apply a more direct antidote to ill will, and that's the antidote of metta, kindness, which is often translated as goodwill. So there's a very direct relationship between metta, goodwill, as an antidote to the hindrance of ill will. We'll likely be doing some formal metta practice later in the retreat, but it's never too soon to start inclining the heart and the mind in that direction. So at any point, feel free to bring in some metta or some compassion or some self-compassion practice as needed. So these first two hindrances are manifestations of greed and hatred, two of the three core afflictive energies that the Buddha recognized tend to keep us caught. The next three are all manifestations of the core afflictive energy of ignorance. So they're different flavors of delusion, disconnection, distraction. So sloth and torpor. These are old-fashioned English words for sleepishness, Sleepishness. <laughs> new word. Maybe that's what it is. It's sleepishness. I think I've just found a new word for sloth and torpor. I was trying to say sleepish. <laughs> wow. Sleepiness. This is right effort. Sleepiness and sluggishness in the body. So sleepiness and sluggishness in the body. Dullness or stiffness in the mind. And an Australian Pali scholar, Christopher Ash, who some of you may know, he translates it as sluggishness and inertia. And again, this covers a whole spectrum of intensity, from the total unconsciousness of sleep all through to just that very slight feeling of drowsiness or spaciness. So in terms of the bowl of water analogy, this is a bowl that's covered over with, quote, slimy moss and water plants. So we can't see clearly. The mind is stale. It's stagnant. Nothing moves. The water is choked with weeds. 
And when I first heard this metaphor, I thought it sounded relatively benign compared to, say, the boiling water of ill will. But in a way, that's part of the trap of it. It can be slightly seductive to just sink into a slightly zoned-out feeling. And so sometimes sloth and torpor is mildly pleasant, at least compared to the agitation of sense-desire or ill-will. So if you notice, perhaps, getting seduced by that complacency, again, you might remember your aspiration and just ask, is this really how I want to spend this precious retreat time? Just zoning out, tuning out, napping four or five times a day. But again, that's okay. You know, Some of us might be really exhausted. So this, again, is the balance of right effort, what's appropriate for my conditions now. So in addition to simple sleepiness and dullness, this one can also show up as a kind of apathy or that habitual tendency to retreat, to pull back in the face of difficulties, that common tendency to uh, hear the wake-up bell in the morning, I'll just go back to bed for a little while. It would be self-care. So we want to pay attention and notice Is it just a habitual desire to check out, to numb out, to disconnect from anything challenging? Or is it a genuine need to rest? You might notice when you do take a nap, what happens? Is there more clarity afterwards or less? Could there be other options? Maybe taking a walk can help to raise the energy. So in terms of meditation, just in case any of the sloth and torpor might possibly be creeping in right now, one, the first strategy is to open the eyes. Sometimes it's recommended to look at a bright light just to stimulate the senses a little. If that doesn't work, we can change to standing for a while. And I was happy to see some of you doing that in the meditation sessions earlier. Usually just changing posture to standing brings in a little more alertness and brightness. The other suggestion that I had from one of my first teachers in those times when we're really caught in that nodding and bobbing and we just can't seem to come out of it. Anyone had that experience where you just keep slumping and then you wake up and you try to hope nobody noticed and then a few minutes later you're bobbing again these teachers suggested next time you're down, just stay there. <laughs> Don't bob back up. Just let yourself notice how does it feel when you're down. And I tried that. It was surprisingly effective. When I did eventually mindfully come back, the mind was brighter. A little bit embarrassed, but definitely brighter. <laughs> So just a couple more hindrances to go, and I will keep them brief. So sloth and torpor is an imbalance of energy in the direction of not enough energy. And it has a relationship to the fourth one, which is hit restlessness and worry. And this is an imbalance of energy in terms of too much energy. And often we swing between sluggishness, apathy, and then feeling all revved up and stressed out. And because that revving up as tiring before long we slump back into inertia again and this restlessness and worry it covers the whole spectrum of intensity 
from the most intense physical jumping out of our skin and mental agitation through to just little flickers of anxiety or regret. And it has both a bodily component and a mental component, which of course impact each other. So restlessness in the body. Anybody experience that today? Sort of twitchy, jumpy, want to move every few seconds. But the more we move, the more we want to move. Until suddenly we feel like we can't stand even one more minute of sitting still. And at other times the mind gets comes in and starts getting caught in worry and rumination, wondering, proliferation, agitation, anxiety. And so the metaphor in terms of water is a bowl of water that's, quote, ruffled by the wind, so that the water trembles, eddies, and ripples. And again, it's rough, it's choppy, it's turbulent, we can't see clearly. On retreat, this can show up as obsessive thinking, ruminating, the mind that just keeps looping and looping and looping over the same thoughts, endlessly trying to solve a problem that actually just can't be worked out by thinking alone. So if you do find yourself getting caught in that, all the energies up in the head and we're going over and over and over, often it's more useful to bring the energy down into the body, to the heart, and to see if there might be some underlying emotion that's actually driving that thinking. So sometimes we use our thinking to try and disconnect from some kind of unpleasant emotion or mind state that we don't want to feel. So we try instead to kindly, gently bring the awareness into the heart and just to see if there's something that could benefit from some compassion, self-compassion. So finally we get to the last hindrance, which is skeptical doubt, which seems to be the one that most of you recognize most easily. So this doubt can show up in a lot of different forms. It can be doubt about the teachings, can be doubt about the teachers, can be doubt about our own capacity to do the practice. And sometimes in the body it feels shaky, hollow, ungrounded. But for most people, doubt is associated more strongly with in the mind as a kind of endless questioning or undermining or second-guessing or uncertainty or confusion. And the traditional metaphor for this one is a bowl of water that is agitated, <coughs> stirred up, muddied, and put in a dark place. So I was interested that this bowl of water is not only filled with mud, both literally and metaphorically, it's in a dark place. And that gets, gives you a sense of the doubly destructive aspect of doubt. The mind is clouded by mud and it's in a dark place, so we can't even recognize that it's clouded by mud. So it's often quite hard to recognize. And this hindrance is usually referred to as skeptical doubt rather than just doubt because we want to distinguish it from a more helpful form of questioning, questioning or inquiry. So the difference is that with genuine inquiry, the questions lead to more clarity, to more understanding. But with skeptical doubt, the questions just keep looping around themselves, 
sometimes what's known as paralysis by analysis. And on retreat, we sometimes find it showing up as just endlessly wondering, well, what do I do now? Should I, should I do mindfulness of breathing or, or metta? Should I be trying to get more concentrated or more relaxed? Would it be better to do walking meditation or yoga? And we just can't decide. And so sometimes we end up not doing anything. There's one really simple remedy for this problem. On one level, it doesn't matter what kind of practice you do. Because cultivating mindfulness or kindness or compassion, it's always time well spent. There's one other way that doubt can show up on retreat. And that's in the very common tendency to start thinking about, well, how is this going to work back in my, quote, real life? It's all very well here, but what about when I'm with my partner or my family or back at work and so on? And so instead of staying here and present, we're constantly jumping to, well, what if and what how and then what and how's this going to work? And that's unrealistic. And we get caught in comparing what we think of as real life to what's happening here. And I've started to see that as a form of doubt. Because actually what we call real life, is it really real? Given that the Buddha understood greed, hatred and delusion are fundamental distortions of our true nature. And given that that same greed, hatred and delusion are pretty rampant in most of life out there, how real is that? You could say that what we're doing here cultivating our true nature of kindness, of clarity, of compassion is way more real than any of the delusions and the ignorance and the greed and the hatred that are going on out there. So if you notice that tendency, yeah, but what if and how and how, this can be kind of a little cynical voice that's subtly undermining, comparing this to reality. See if you recognize that as another manifestation of doubt. And sometimes just the recognition of it helps it to disappear. But if it's really strong, you might like to talk it through with the teacher and see if they can give you some suggestions. Okay, so that's our relatively quick tour of what these five hindrances are. I'm guessing that at least a few of them are familiar to you. I've been showing up with different degrees of intensity. And even for those of you who've been doing this practice for a long time, they still come up. But the good news is that they tend to come up with less intensity. They don't stick around for nearly as long. And so as we get more skill at helping these hindrances to release, we naturally come into the terrain of the last two aspects of right effort. And these involve helping beneficial mental states to come up. When they have come up, to help them to strengthen and deepen. So we'll be exploring that a little later on in the retreat. But I thought just to give you maybe a small taste of where this is leading and how it might feel in the heart and the mind. I thought to close with a few minutes of contemplation. Just a few in some ways similar to the practice that we did this afternoon, where we were first tuning into the physical sensations of clinging and resisting, and then tuning into the physical symptoms of release, 
of ease, of openness and well-being. So tonight, just inviting you to settle for a few moments into a, a more meditative posture if you aren't already. Letting the body settle. Steady. And then just take a moment to notice how is the heart, the mind now. Possible you might find some trace of wanting, sense desire, or not wanting, aversion. Quite likely some degree of tiredness, sloth, torpor, or restlessness, agitation. Maybe some form of doubt. And if you do happen to recognize anything in that terrain, see if you can just let it be known, just let it be there. Without any trace of judgment, any trace of taking it personally. Just knowing these hindrances as temporary visitors. Not me. Not mine. Not who I am. And as those hindrances are met with kind curiosity instead of rejection or judgment, Possible they might begin to get a little weaker. Not pushing them away, but just seeing if they might slightly fade into the background. Possibly even disappearing altogether. trying to make them go away. Just noticing what happens when you let the hindrances be without clinging or resisting. these hindrances subside to whatever extent they do, you might notice what effect this has on the heart and the mind. Perhaps there's just a little more room in there now some more skillful states to be known. Yeah. 
perhaps just a little more openness, acceptance, ease or well-being. or spaciousness, clarity, warmth or kindness, even a taste of freedom. Letting that in to whatever extent it's available to you now. Just resting. In that relative ease. The temporary absence of the hindrances. May we all taste many more moments of freedom from these visiting afflictive states. Thank you for exploring that with me.